A reading from Revelation chapter 12. And a great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and and on her head a crown of seven stars, or twelve stars. She was with child, and she cried out in her pangs of birth, in anguish for delivery. And another portent appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems upon his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child that he might devour the child when she brought it forth. She brought forth a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called devil, the devil, or Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. The word of the Lord. There's some gospel in there, right? You're just going to have to wait to find it. Well, thanks for having me. It's a great uh, honor, and, you know, it's, it's humbling to stand in the pulpit of two of my favorite preachers in the world. So uh, I'm glad to be here. Um, And I bring you greetings from Solomon's Porch in South Minneapolis. We're definitely a sister congregation to House of Mercy. We were founded uh, by Doug and Shelley Paget in the year 2000. And Doug and Russell and Debbie and I have done, spoken at many church conferences together of people who are trying to figure out uh, how churches like this tick. So I'm glad to be here. And visit us sometime at Solomon's Porch, and you'll find brothers and sisters in church experimentation there. Uh, I think we discovered something last summer at the, at the Cineplex. We discovered once and for all that Superman is terribly, terribly boring. Really, I think Man of Steel... The like third reboot of Superman in film finally proved what a boring character Superman really is. I, I think it was covered when we were children by the bumbling uh, comic Christopher Reeve Superman. But when you try to go straight with Superman, like they did in Man of Steel, you realize what a boring character he is. You know who else is boring? 
Captain America. Terribly boring. Terribly boring. You know who's not boring? Katniss Everdeen. There have been a lot of filmmakers trying uh, to bring non-boring characters to life, and I've uh, become fond of many of them. Denzel Washington as uh, a blind seeker holding the last version of the Bible. Tom Cruise in Oblivion and Matt Damon in Elysium and Brad Pitt in World War Z. And I could go on. Katniss Everdeen is an unlikely messiah armed only with her wits and the very weapon that slew St. Sebastian navigating a dystopian post-apocalyptic America. It can't be denied that we live in a world, in a culture right now that is obsessed with the dystopian and the post-apocalyptic. And it's also obvious to a lot of us that a Roman Catholic like Suzanne Collins who made up the character Katniss Everdeen, is a much more gifted post-apocalyptic storyteller than Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye, authors of the Left Behind novels. We cheer for Jennifer Lawrence playing Katniss on the big screen, and we cringe at Kurt Cameron playing Buck Williams. And we wince at the thought of Nicolas Cage, who's... because left behind for some reason needed a film reboot and so Nicolas Cage is now going to play Buck Williams. My son Tanner's in eighth grade right there front row at a boy. This fall his literature class in public high school had a four week long multi book unit on dystopian literature. Not something that happened when I went to the same middle school that he now goes to, a unit on the dystopian. And he's also a comic book fan, and it should be noted that in the comics that arrive at our house every month, Superman is not so boring as in the Man of Steel movie. No, he's not another boring white guy commuting between Smallville and Metropolis. Instead, the Superman that arrived at our house last week is darker and more haunted living in the year 3000 in a post-apocalyptic America and at war with Batman. So I come today because I cannot possibly compete with Debbie and Russell and talk about a particular passage of the Bible and unlock its mysteries for you as they do on a weekly basis. Instead, I come today to make a proposal about genre instead of a particular passage, and it's this. We as Christians, need to reclaim the apocalyptic. Apocalypse means unveiling. That's what the Greek word means. Literally, the pulling back of a veil. The rise of apocalyptic literature took place uh, it really in the time that we call the intertestamental time, the time between the closing of the Hebrew Scriptures and the birth of Jesus. In those several hundred years. In fact, the, uh, there are a couple points of apocalyptic literature in the Hebrew Bible, in Ezekiel, and most particularly in Daniel. 
And that portion of Daniel was probably written in about 160 BCE. So what is considered most of the time, the 400 years leading up to the birth of Jesus, is considered this intertestamental time. And scholars think that the apocalyptic genre was born because the Hebrews had to rejigger their expectations of God's promises to them. God had so often and so forcefully promised to them that they were going to be sovereign. And their periods of sovereignty were so short before they were once again put into exile and under the rule of another country that they started to read all of God's promises in Torah and in the prophets differently. They started to read them with a different view and understanding of time. And the apocalyptic genre was born. In the, uh, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls or the Qumran Scrolls that were found uh, in the early 20th century, we find all sorts of writings from this intertestamental period from the tribe or political party called the Essenes, which some, some scholars think Jesus was an Essene. They were um, highly religious and, and mystical Hebrews. And all these scrolls that were found in those pots by the shepherd in the 1940s in the Dead Sea Scrolls, many of the writings therein are apocalyptic. There's an entire uh, manual of warfare called the Book of War for how the Jews were going to set themselves up for war with very kind of detailed battle plans. But the war was a cosmic war between the sun of light and the sun of darkness. Not a war against the Roman oppressors. Jesus himself would have been very familiar with the apocalyptic genre, and he was an apocalyptic preacher. There's a a sermon he gave that's recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, most extensively in Matthew chapter 24. You'll, you'll recognize some of this. I'll read a short passage of it. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will this be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Jesus answered them, Beware that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and they will lead you astray. And you will hear wars of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For a nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All this is the beginning of the birth pangs. Then they will hand you over to be tortured and will put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away and they will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray, and love will grow cold. Doesn't sound very Jesus-y. Jesus' Olivet Discourse, as it's called, is one of the most difficult for scholars to figure out and pick through because it is so at odds with so much other stuff that Jesus said. 
he did seem very concerned about the here and now and healing people's afflictions. And yet in this one passage, he talks about the end will coming, the end will be coming. And then, of course, there's the Apocalypse of John, out of which we had our reading this evening, also known as the book of Revelation. It barely made it into the canon. Many in the early church tried to exclude it. And to this day, it is read flatly and hollowly by conservatives and avoided by liberals. It's not easy for those of us on the progressive side of the Christian spectrum to embrace the apocalyptic. In fact, uh, many liberals tend to go running for the exits when the apocalyptic comes up in the lectionary, and many preachers default to the psalm to preach on those rare occasions when the apocalypse of John is in the lectionary reading for Sunday. For one thing, it's completely irrational, it's unempirical, unscientific. And for another, it's been co-opted by Jack Van Impey and Harold Camping and other people who tend to get their own TV shows and talk about the end of the world. So it's caused me to wonder what it is about Suzanne Collins that she can write such an incredibly compelling version of the apocalypse of America as a Catholic and the main Protestants, LaHaye and Jenkins, have such a wooden and hollow reading of the apocalypse. Much of the current thinking about the Apocalypse of John, some of which you may have heard, is that it was written by John the Elder, probably not the same author as the Gospel of John, probably not the same author as the three letters of John in the New Testament. John the Elder, while he was imprisoned on Patmos, an island by the Roman Empire, and that it's an anti-colonialist treatise against the Roman Empire, written in code so as not to be erased and destroyed by the Roman Empire before it could get out to the early church to give people hope that Roman oppression would sometime end. This is the reading uh, by theologian Alan Bosak, who wrote during an incredible commentary on the book of Revelation during apartheid South Africa. And he wrote this, which would exclude probably every one of us in this room from rightly understanding this text. He wrote, Those who do not know suffering through oppression, who do not struggle together with God's people for the sake of the gospel, and who do not feel in their bodies the meaning of oppression and the freedom and joy of fighting against it, shall have grave difficulty understanding this letter from Patmos. But... This anti-colonialist, liberationist reading of the apocalypse has the potential to be just as flat, just as hollow, just as literalist as the Left Behind books. For the latter, the one-to-one correlations are clear. Obama is the Antichrist, the United Nations is Babylon, and barcodes on our food is the sign of the beast. 
You can look it up on Google. Google it. Google the sign of the beast. You will see UPC codes. That's the number one thing that people think is the sign of the beast. But for liberationists, it can be just as literal, just as one-to-one correlational. The United States is Babylon. The capitalistic free market is the Antichrist. And consumerism, or UPC codes, are the mark of the beast. So maybe they agree on that part. But the apocalypse demands to be read differently. You know, uh, James Allison has been the theologian in residence at this church a couple times, maybe. And uh, his muse is the anthropologist cum theologian, René Girard. Girard, early in his career, said that the book of Revelation should be excluded from the canon and cut out of the New Testament. But he's come around on the book of Revelation. And here's what he said recently in an interview about Revelation. Christianity is the only religion that has foreseen its own failure. This prescience is known as the apocalypse. Indeed, it is in the apocalyptic texts that the word of God is most forceful, repudiating mistakes that are entirely the fault of humans who are less and less inclined to acknowledge the mechanisms of their violence. So Girard challenges us to read the apocalyptic as subversive and as a secret motive force in all of human history. Feminist scholars, too, have written a lot about apocalypse because you cannot avoid the misogynistic in the apocalyptic. It's overtly masculine. In fact, listen to this from Revelation chapter 2. To everyone who conquers and continues to do my work to the end, I will give them authority over the nations to rule them with an iron rod as when clay pots are shattered. The phallic smashes the yonic. But even feminist scholars have done what they can to recover the apocalyptic. Talking about the yonic in the way that the paths and patterns of history unfold in the Apocalypse of John. It's like, for one thing, it's like a Russian doll set. You open one and there's another, and you open another and there's another. Another way you think of it is the sevens. There's so many sevens in the book of Revelation. Seals, scrolls, trumpets, bowls. But when you look closely at the sevens, In the seventh, the seventh is never completed. And the next septet is always birthed out of the last of the seven. And so this, the key I think for me that unlocks the apocalypse from feminist theologian Catherine Keller. With the book of Revelation, she writes, in the last text of the biblical canon. Writing is no longer a derivative, mimetic act, a matter of mere scribal memory. 
but a performative power. With the book of Revelation, Keller says, the Bible goes from recording what has happened to launching us into the performance of Christianity in the context of empire. In other words, to say that the apocalypse of John lacks meaning is like saying that uh, a, a tune by John Coltrane has no meaning because it has no words. Or think of the artist Chuck Close, whose portraits are at the Walker and the MIA. Some of us, I remember from middle school going to the Walker and seeing the hyper-realist mega self-portrait by Chuck Close. He, was, he became famous for these portraits in the 60s and 70s. In 1988, though, Chuck Close had a spinal artery collapse and was paralyzed from the neck down, regaining only a bit of use of one hand. And now he paints much more abstract portraits with a paintbrush tied to his arm and the assistance of an assistant or two as he tells them where to put the paintbrush. And intriguingly, his latest works are as valuable as his early hyper-realist works. Art critics say that his new portraits, his abstract portraits, are what he was trying to break through to all along, even in his hyper-realism. The apocalyptic offers us as a church an opportunity to imaginatively live in a world of empire using abstract ideas, using bright colors with dragons whose tails sweep half the stars from the heavens. But I think, finally, there is something for us personally and spiritually as well. The apocalyptic is born in external trauma. Whether it's the book of Daniel during the Babylonian captivity or the apocalypse of John during the oppression of the Roman Empire. So apocalyptic in the scripture also speaks to us personally born in trauma, almost more as a dream than as a parable of Jesus or an epistle of Paul. It speaks to our higher levels of consciousness, not just those that are more congenial to literal and ethical modes of interpretation. And because the apocalyptic addresses higher and deeper levels of consciousness those that are more congenial to symbol and metaphor and song. It has great power for internal transformation. The internal, of course, is so deeply important and so much of what Jesus came to be about. The external, of course, and the internal married, maybe in a way that we've been missing in the apocalyptic. Amen.